0: you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and we will be in the first seven verses. And so as you're turning there, just something to uh, be aware of, is that we are going to take this season, this Advent season, to work through really the traditional Advent themes of Christ's coming. So today's theme is going to be hope. This is what we're going to be kicking off today. Hope. Then we will work through peace, love, and joy. So hope, peace, love, and joy. And so with that said, think about what is hope? How do you define hope? My definition, this is my personal one, it would be a confident expectation of God to fulfill His promises. A confident expectation of God to fulfill His promises. And I'm talking about hope in the sense of what the Bible says or tells us hope is. It's also helpful to know what hope is not. Hope is not a shaky expectation with no real certainty, you you hear yourself say that sometimes, or other people say this. You know, I I hope that God fulfills His promises, or I hope Georgia can upset Alabama, or I hope X Y and Z. But such definitions are shaky. They're they're built on a not a firm foundation. It's just kind of like walking around with your fingers crossed, hoping for the best. But that's not what the Bible says as far as hope. Biblical hope is ultimately nourishment for the soul. You see, in the, hope, in the Bible, the Bible tells us that hope gives us joy. So it affects our moods, it affects our soul, it affects our hearts. Psalm, or Proverbs 10.28 says, the hope of the righteous brings joy. Biblical hope also carries us through sorrow and grief. And I'm not just talking about you having trouble with buying a home or you're struggling at work or something like that. I'm talking the deepest, lowest possible grief at all. Lamentations 3, 18-22, in a time when Israel was captured people were having to kill their own family members in order to eat them so they wouldn't starve to death. This sort of low time. The, the lamenter Jeremiah says, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. It's bowed down to suffering, bowed down to pain. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. And what is he calling to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Biblical hope also anchors us in God. We see this in Hebrews The sixth chapter, verse 19, says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Biblical hope is also the assurance of our faith. It is the assurance of our faith. Hebrews 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so in reverse, hope is the assurance of our faith. And so, biblical hope is completely different than worldly hope, or the hope that, We hope we get the job, or we hope we get the house, or we hope this, or hope that, and there's no certainty. But with the Bible, all things are certain and assured in God's promises. And so our biblical hope, the confident expectation for God to fulfill promises, is not something that is just exclusively for New Testament Christians. As I've read from the Old Testament, it is an Old Testament hope as well. The Old Testament saints and prophets were longing for Jesus to come. Jesus told us in Matthew thirteen sixteen through 17 Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The Old Testament saints were hoping, longing for that day. And so the Old Testament was anticipating Jesus. But they died. And though they died, it didn't mean that hope was gone or that hope died. Hope was ultimately realized in the birth of Jesus. And that is what we celebrate as Christmas even over 2,000 years after the coming of Christ. So the focus of today is the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas. So I kind of had this idea, kids, if you're going to make posters for your parents, which they love when you draw things, they hold on to them so you know. Mom and dad keep a little binder, and they're like, man, keep drawing and writing more things for me. Just in case you're wondering, kids, what your mom and dad do with your drawings. So take a piece of paper and write the word hope really big on it. Okay? Hope. H. O-P-E, and if you can't spell, have someone next to you help you spell it, and I want you to color it in, make it really pretty, really nice, And and along the way, if I'm talking about something that catches your mind or catches your heart, you can also write notes on that paper around the word hope, but write hope really big, that way it can be a point of conversation or a point of remembrance, maybe you hang it up in your bedroom, and you can remember the hope of Christmas. We're in the book of Galatians. The church of Galatia, this New Testament church, seems to have really kind of started strong. They were really strong, really orthodox, really focused on the truth. And then Paul here gets word of them, catches wind of them, and he finds out they have been bewitched. Almost like a spell has been cast on them. Like they forgot everything that Paul had taught them. And they had been now influenced by false teachers, namely those of a Jewish bent. And these false teachers were convincing them and steering them away from justification by faith alone. And they were pointing the church to that justification also includes the law and fulfilling the law. Paul is just full of righteous rage. You can feel it within this letter. And zeal. And he pleads with the church not to believe anyone who preaches to them a gospel contrary to what he preaches them, even if that person is an angel of light, do not believe them. That's how passionate he feels and how frustrated he is that the church was being deceived. And so he takes time in this chapter, in the fourth chapter, to explain to the church the role and function of the law in the grander story or the meta-narrative of redemption. And to show the church in Galatia... That they have no need of trying to earn their righteousness before God because God came down and earned it for them on their behalf. And so in these initial verses, verses 1-7, through Paul uses really an illustration to build out his point. And so what we'll see is really a hopeless condition of the human soul without Christ. We'll see... Hope's arrival, that is the story of Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, and how that hope then turns into an intimate hope in the life of the believer. And so let me read chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in its entirety, and then we will work through this together. So follow along with me. Galatians 4. I mean that an heir, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would be with me as I preach, as I exhort... Be with us as we hear this word. May you be glorified. May we leave encouraged, emboldened even to act in obedience and faithfulness. Thank you, Father. Bless this time for your glory's sake. Amen. The hopeless condition of the human soul, verses 1-3. through 3. I'll read it again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul decides to paint a picture, paint an illustration of the point he's getting across regarding the law and regarding our condition in light of the law and then ultimately measuring that to what Christ has done. The work and person of Christ. And so he points out this picture of a child being an heir to inheritance. And so a child in this time has no more rights than a slave. And, but the difference is, he, unlike the slave, will receive an inheritance. Will receive what is his father's. He will eventually grow out of this slave status, if you will. But in the meantime, his father sets over his son, really this guardian, this manager who will take control of the finances and of the son and eventually in due time, make sure that the son receives them. And this word guardian, we've seen it one other time in the book of Galatians. If you were to go and read chapter three, verse 24 through 26, Paul says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul uses this word guardian in the third chapter to talk about how the law became a guardian for us, watching over us. As we constantly lived our lives and were pressing our lives to the law, we found out we were constantly falling short. We were constantly falling short of holiness, of righteousness, of purity, etc., etc. But Paul uses that word here in more of a negative sense of our condition. The manager or the guardian here is not the law as he was using in the third chapter, rather someone more evil or twisted. One commentator says, the administrators and managers referred to here, they control the property and finances of the minor, depriving him of all independent action, so that in reality, his liberty is reduced to that of a slave. So this manager, this guardian, who is over this child, who is ultimately an heir, he is... Ultimately, keeping this child from what is rightfully his. Deceiving him. No, everything's good. I got your money under control. Everything's fine. You're doing okay. But really limiting that heir. And so Paul is saying, in that same way, you were not only under the guardian of the law, but you were also under this wicked guardian. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In short... Satan and his demons and the work that they have here on earth. We were children under the guardian of Satan, our earthly, worldly father, lowercase f, if you will. We were enslaved to him, having our inheritance withheld from us, if you will. Satan is going, no, 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 yeah, you, you're good, you're doing fine. Keep working at obeying the law because eventually you'll get there. Yeah, keep striving harder, harder and harder. And we ultimately believing that, okay, yeah, if I keep doing good, if I do more, then I'm going to get it. Really falling into the deception of Satan, and that is not the Gospel. The Gospel is not do harder, work harder, try harder. All humans fall short of the law. And all humans, apart from Christ, are subject to a wicked, evil, and cruel manager. This is the hopeless condition of our souls without Jesus. We are dead in our sins. And even if we try to obey the Bible, do good works, pray to God, go to church, speak, speak out against evil in society, but do all of it apart from faith in Jesus, it is all inspired by the devil. We've been seeing this in the Gospel of John. Like the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, they've got the Bible in their hand and. They're at the temple, they're so close, and they're not these overt like devil worshippers, right? They actually think they are God's people. And yet Satan is influencing them, twisting God's word just enough to where they think they're believing God's word. To where they think that they're righteous. To where they think that they're justified. Satan is not always off in a Halloween costume, right? Murdering people left and right like Jason or something. He even disguises himself as an angel of light. Using God's word, twisting it in such a way to where you think that you are justified by what you do. Making you forget that Christ is the one who does it on your behalf. This Christmas season, I want us to do a couple of things. I want us to remember first the, hopeless, the hopelessness That we had before Jesus saved us. That hopeless condition. Now I don't want you to park there. I don't want you to stay there. But I want you to remember it. Do you remember who you were without Christ? Do you remember who you once were? Do you know who you would have been if you weren't saved? Some of you grew up in the church and you don't know any different. Well if you weren't uh, following Jesus, what would you be doing? What are the passions and the desires of the flesh that tempt you right now? And how do they continue to tempt you? Like Where do you think you would go without Christ? And can you see your sin? Can you see how broken you really are? But then, I want you to consider the world around you. Consider the world around you that is lost and stuck in that hopeless condition. You and I have been saved. You and I have been pulled out of death, been pulled out of the grave, and been pulled into life from darkness to light. And we were just like those in the world around us who are still stuck in that hopeless condition. But we need to humble ourselves. Not become too haughty or arrogant or puffed up thinking that we are someone better. Because remember, we were just like the world. This is why it's also important for us to remember who we were in our hopeless state. So I want us to consider, before we become boiling mad at unbelievers, just angry, think about who is managing their inheritance. Think about who it is that is depriving them of their freedom. They are living under a lie. Believing they have a good guardian, that they have a good future, a good inheritance, a true freedom. It is up to you and I to tell them the truth. We have a better guardian. We have the one true and living God. You are not following Him. You are truly enslaved. So hopefully that will help us kind of slow down. You know, bring the blood pressure down just a little bit as we are looking at the lost world around us. You and I had a hopeless condition, but then our hope arrived and shed truth on the lie that we were ultimately living. And so we see hope's arrival in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This fullness of time. What do we understand by this? What did the Father do in this fullness of time? And what was the intent of His work in the, this fullness of time? And what do we learn about the, the work and the person of Jesus Christ in this fullness of time? Well, the fullness of time, really, we don't have... Paul doesn't sit here and lay out in detail the, the explicitness of that saying, but what we do know is that it is the time that God had set forth in sending His Son, just to put it simply, right? Right? But if we think a little bit deeper in that, what we learn here is that redemptive history had to be played out. The Bible is not just a history book. It's not a history book. It's redemptive history. It's God's Word. There's history, but there's a purpose to the entirety of history and the story of God. Think about the Christmas season. Think about everything that comes into play. Think about the story. Right. Even the star of Bethlehem, how that all had to be arranged at that point of time in history. Joseph being born, the, the, the adopted father, if you will, of Jesus. Him being born of the family of which he was born, of the family of David. Right. Cause they had to go back to Bethlehem to be registered there so that ultimately Jesus would be born in the city of David. Jerusalem and Bethlehem considered the cities of David. Think about the prophecies, especially in Isaiah. Isaiah is mentioned so many times during the Christmas season. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ and how all of that had to come into perfect fulfillment when Jesus showed up. And that means then even the way that history played out the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all of them, all of those foreign countries coming in and enslaving Israel was a part of the plan of redemption so that Christ would ultimately come one day. I mean, you see the magnitude of how God is orchestrating history. And then the fact that Joseph and Mary even met and that Mary was of age to Mary and that she was still a virgin and that her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And that John came just before Jesus to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi, that he would be the forerunner of this Messiah. I mean, there's too much here, right? Too much coincidence, if you will, to say it's just coincidence or happenstance. This is the redemptive work of God in His infinite wisdom. But the main point of Paul's argument isn't just going and just flipping through all the pages of redemptive history, he points more specifically that Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, before the institution of the law, before the establishment of the nation of Israel, before the kings were even formed, before the major prophets were even a twinkle in their mama's eye. He says this in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say... And to his offspring,s referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Galatians three sixteen. Paul is making the point that Jesus comes as a perfect fulfillment of all redemptive history, going all the way back to the book of Genesis and even before Abraham. Genesis three fifteen, the serpent or the the offspring who would come and crush the head of the serpent of the offspring, or the offspring of the serpent. Backwards. We also learn from these verses that it was the Father who sent Jesus. And it wasn't Jesus was going, like kicking and complaining, I don't want to go, Dad. I don't want to do this. But no, what we learn here of the Father is that just as Jesus has been telling us in the Gospels, that Jesus comes to do the works of the father there's a willingness there's a submission there's a love here the father gave up his son jesus willingly gave up his life jesus came so that we would ultimately see the father through him and so the father sends his son and not just any son but his eternal son jesus is not the father the father is not jesus But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. From eternity, Jesus has been the Son of the Father. It's not as though at some point in time, Jesus finally became the Son of God. No, He always has been from eternity. And equally, the Father has always been the Son's Father. And this Jesus, who was sent by the Father, not only is He the eternal Son, but He is God. To be the Son of God is to be God. To be the Son of the eternal divine Father is to also be eternal and divine. The DNA of the Son is the DNA of the Father. There is no separation of that. Jesus was not created. He's always been. He was created as a human, but He was also uncreated. He's eternal. He's God. And this son who was sent by the Father, this eternal son who is God, he was to be born a human son, born of a woman. We know this woman to be Mary. And why does Jesus take on flesh? In order to redeem humanity. In order for God to redeem humanity in their fallen state, He too has to become human, taking on the form of humanity in its entirety without sinning in order to redeem humanity back to what it was created to be. But even more than that, not only did Jesus just take on flesh, but He was born under the law. Born under the law. So just as humanity lived under the law, so did Jesus. Jesus. The difference between us, or the church of Galatia, and Jesus is that the law never condemned Jesus like it did us. And why? Because Jesus could perfectly fulfill all the demands of the law, even down to His soul, His conscience, His mind, His body. In every way, not only would Jesus perfectly uphold the law, He would be the perfect fulfillment of the law. Meaning, the law was a reflection of Jesus's perfection, holiness, and character. Jesus wasn't a reflection of the law, the law was a reflection of Jesus. And because Jesus was never condemned by the law, he was never subject to the elemental principles of the world. He was never subject to Satan in that way. He always was true to his one Father, the Father in heaven. And so he would live in perfect submission to him. He would ultimately live the life no human could live apart from Him. But the objective was not, well, let me come down here and show you how it's done and just rub it in your face. The objective of Jesus was to come down and fulfill the law. To live a perfect, righteous, holy life on the behalf of sinners and then apply that to the sinner. That we would be righteous because through faith, we then take on the righteousness of Christ. Jesus does this on the behalf of sinners. And so Jesus doesn't come down puffing His chest up or turning His nose up to sinners. Instead He says, I'm going to do this on your behalf so that you might live. And Paul makes that clear. That this... Son that the Father sent, who is the eternal Son, the eternal Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, does these things so that we might receive adoption as sons. We would go from being fostered by the worst foster father in all of human history to adopted as sons to the living God. But though adopted, we become legitimate sons and daughters of God. He's not ashamed of us. We actually take on His name. We, we take on the inheritance. And now the guardian, the manager that is put over us is no longer Satan and his evil ways, but the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. He would rightly guard us until we fully receive what the Father intends to give to us. So church, Christmas reminds us that our salvation in Jesus comes about in the fullness of God's timing. Not only was Jesus coming to earth in the right timing and redemptive history, you and I were born in this era. Born in this generation, in this time, this part of the globe, among this church body with all good intention and purpose, God has purposed the events of history to play out in such a way that you would ultimately come to know Him through His Son, Jesus. There is no mistake in what God has done. This is all purposed. This is all part of His plan. And that gives us reason to rejoice in Him. To praise Him. To have hope in Him. Christmas reminds us that we also have a Savior who gets it. He gets it. He understands 100% what it means to be a human, what it means to be born under the condemnation of the law, if you will. He gets what, it, what it's like to have to suffer. He gets what it's like to have to grow up. He gets what it's like to have to obey parents, what it's like to have to have a job, what it's like to stub his toe and not slip out the cuss word. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't even funny? Just one little bit? Okay. I don't even try jokes, but one time. Come on. We don't have to give. Because Jesus has done this by faith, we then are imputed His righteousness. It's ours. As the Gospel of John has talked about, that we are abiding in Him, and He is abiding in us. That's who we are now. And now we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that even some more here soon. But what that means is, we have the ability to live a life of rejecting sin. To live a righteous and holy life. Yes, we will sin, but we also have the power to overcome it. Because the humanity that Jesus lived, the human life that He lived, is a life that we can also live by the power of His Spirit. Let me be clear, we are not God and we can't be God. I am not saying that, but what I'm saying is we can reject sin. We can pursue righteousness. We can pursue holiness. And if we do sin, we have an advocate for us who will stand on our behalf and let the Father know, I take his sin, give him my righteousness. And so I want you to be encouraged that you no longer have a lowercase f father, but a capital F father who loves you, who cares for you, who sees you, who knows you, who loves you like He loves His Son. And it would be pleasing to Him if you just rest in knowing Him by faith. He's not asking you to fulfill the law and all the demands of the law. He's asking you to believe in the One who can and who does. So Jesus comes at Christmas not to simply save us from our sins, to bring us to heaven, right? To cross us over from the bad team to the good team, but to bring us also into an intimate relationship with the Father. And so here's where we see intimate hope. Verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Because you are sons, or Spirit-filled sons. Just to be really clear here, Paul is not saying, or giving this progressional argument of, first you become a son, and then you get the Holy Spirit. It's not what he's getting at. What Paul is saying is, when you're a son, you're a son with the Holy Spirit. And because you're Spirit-filled sons, the Spirit then makes us cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And so the Holy Spirit. Here now we see the third person of the Trinity mentioned in this passage. We have the Father, the Son, now the Spirit And so this is the beauty of the Christmas story. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working in perfect unity and perfect harmony to fulfill redemption through Christ. Jesus will come. And He will come not to just be born in a manger, all sweet and cute and cuddly, but He will come to live and then come to die. And then come to resurrect So that the Holy Spirit would come and live inside of us. Jesus told the disciples, if I don't go, the Helper cannot come. We are thankful that Jesus came, but we are also thankful that Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So that His Spirit would come and live inside our hearts. And so therefore, all the greatness of Jesus, all all the holiness, all the love, the grace, and the mercy is being applied to us, being applied to our souls by the Spirit, causing our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. The very mention of this word causing shows us that God is making us rightly relate to Him. Without the Spirit, we cannot rightly relate to the Father. Without the work of Jesus, we cannot rightly relate to the Father. And so this term, kind of this Aramaic saying, it has this, uh, this denoting of daddy. Right? You've probably heard that maybe a hundred different times throughout the course of your life. And in fact, you'll even hear it even in, in modern day um, Israel and Hebrew. I, whenever I was in Israel, I actually heard a child crying out for his dad, calling Abba. And so there's this, there's this usage of it even still to this day. But the usage of it is not really this dumbing down of the word or it just being something for little kids, but it's the, this idea of intimacy. It's a name that we get to call the Father in heaven. Like as a child, maybe you have a father, maybe you have a good relation with a father, and you get to say, he's my dad. There's a certainty with that. There's an assurance with that. I carry His name. He's the one who cared for me. He's the one I relate to. You may have your pseudo-fathers in life, but there's that one dad that you have. This is that sort of relationship for the Christian. You get to call Him Dad in a way that no one else can. Those who are outside of Christ do not get to call Him Dad in this same way. And so this is the Father, the Father who hears our prayers. He bends his ears to us and he applies to us the work of Jesus by his spirit. So the Holy Spirit imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus and we become, as a result, free. We go from slave to free. And that's That leads to one of my favorite verses in the New Testament at the beginning of chapter 5 here in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And this is what the Spirit does. No longer under the management or the guardian of the evil one, of Satan. In fact, we're under new management now in Christ. Ephesians 1 reminds us regarding the Holy Spirit. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the earnest payment, if you will, guaranteeing the inheritance that we are to receive. New management is good management. Guaranteeing the inheritance that we will have. We have reason to hope and intimately hope. And as an heir, it does not mean that we rise to the status of Father and Son, but we get to participate and share in what they are giving to us as our own. We're recipients of all things in the heaven. All the grace, the mercy, the blessing, the joy, we now have endless access to. We get to crawl into the lap of the King And the King embraces us as opposed to shun us or cast us out. There's an intimate love that we have because Christ came down. That's great reason to hope. Christmas reminds us that Jesus comes with that intention of bringing us into an intimate relationship with the Father. A relationship that He has with the Father. That's what Jesus prays in John 17. That the disciples would be one as we are one. Talking about Him and the Father. Jesus doesn't just come to save us and He doesn't just come to uh, defeat the devil. He comes also that we might have an intimate relationship with Him and the Father. Christmas, church, also reminds us That we are free. We are free. We are no longer slaves. We are free in Christ. It doesn't matter what the world does to us. What the world might take from us. Might destroy. We are still free. And Christmas reminds us that we continue to hope in the great inheritance to come. Romans 8, 24-26 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Old Testament saints were waiting with patience for the coming of Jesus. Jesus has come. We get to look back. In faith, just like the saints of the Old Testament looked forward in faith. But in the same way that the Old Testament saints were longing for the coming of Christ, so we, the New Testament saints, long for His return. And that when He comes, we will meet Him in the air, and we will be with Him forever, receiving perfectly and fully the inheritance. But how does this apply to life today? You know what Jesus has done, you know what He's doing, what He says He will do, but how does that impact you in the now? And I position it that way because I've had many conversations even in the last week, people are just really curious, what do we do in the now with everything that is going on, how do we apply this now? And to stay within this theme I'll pull us, our attention to one verse in Romans 12. If you've been in your life group, you've been reading through the book of Romans, which has been encouraging, hopefully, for you. Uh, our group read through Romans 12 this last week. And in this one section of Romans 12, you might see kind of the subheading, the, the marks of a, of a Christian. One of these verses, verse 12, says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So how do you bring this to to life? How do you bring this to what's going on now? The first thing you need to do is rejoice in the hope of Christmas. Rejoice in the hope of Christmas. That means shout, clap your hands, sing, throw the biggest party on the block celebrating christmas even lost people celebrate christmas but what makes your celebration stand out even more what is it in your soul that is not in the soul of the lost neighbor who seems to be celebrating christmas as well allow your heart and your affections to be stirred with christ it doesn't matter what you do in life if you don't rejoice in the hope that you have it doesn't matter This is first things first. Rejoice in the hope of Christ. If you want to address the wicked, you need to have a rock solid foundation and hope. You need to have something that you believe in, that your neighbors can see you believe in, that overcomes your fears, that overcomes your anxieties, that overcomes your worries, it overcomes your concerns, and you're constantly filled with joy. This is what Paul says in Philippians. I mean, while he's being jailed, imprisoned, beaten, left for dead, all of these sorts of things, he counts it all joy. It's the book of rejoicing, the book of joy. Paul would not be so convincing if he was constantly hopeless and depressed, Eeyore-like in his life. But he truly believed what Christ has done. And so you and I need to do that as well. Even with all the garbage going on in the world, the things that are going on in the world shouldn't be affecting your soul like the gospel of Jesus affects your soul. Are you a person clouded with fear? Or are you a person anchored in joy? The second thing is, be patient in tribulation. That's what Paul says. Be patient in tribulation. God is not calling you to this quick hurry-up action to the wickedness around you. He's not calling you to idleness either, or sitting on your hands. But some of you are anxious about what's happening in the world around you, and you want action now. True hope in Christ leads you to know and remember that God is not turning a blind eye to tribulation or sin, even as it surrounds Consider what we see in the New Testament in Second Peter. You may have heard the verse where God considers, you know, a thousand years as a day, a day as a thousand years. I believe it's Second Peter. But the picture is that there is this tribulation, that there are these trials, if you will. And God is fulfilling His plan and fulfilling His promises. And even though the wickedness is happening around us, God is patient. He's patient, he's confident, he's assured of his will and of what he's going to accomplish to the point that a thousand years is just like a day to him. But for us, our patience is so lacking that sometimes if we don't act within a day, it feels like a thousand years. We need to take on the patience of the Lord and understand that even the wicked things that are happening around us are happening in side the will and the plan of God. And don't forget, Jesus called us to a discipleship that would cost. He didn't say it was going to be easy. He didn't say that you weren't going to be in threat of losing your life or your possessions or your family. No, he said you'll die. You'll lose your family. You'll lose everything. In the case of following me. But what happens is, for some reason, we get so shocked and surprised that those things might happen to us. But Jesus hasn't said anything else to make us believe otherwise. So we need to relax. Be patient. You understand, Jesus is sitting on the throne. He's not like working out in the the weight room like, man, I've got to get ready to go back down. No, he's like sitting down. He's calm. But he still has all authority, all power, all control. He's still working. He's still moving. So, relax. He's not going to allow his church to cease. He's He's not going to allow the Word of God to completely vanish or disappear. Look at how throughout the the history of the church, the Word of God has prevailed. It has persevered. It has moved through all the most wicked and evil of tyrants, of movements. It's still here today. And last, be constant in prayer. Our first step, my first step, is to whiteboard out a strategy. When there's conflict, when there's issue, man, let's get the whiteboard out Let's figure this out. Let's create a plan. Let's create a strategy, and let's work towards it. But what Paul is calling us to do is to go to the Lord in prayer. Go to the Father. I mean, you saw this in the life of Jesus. When stuff hit the fan, Jesus wasn't freaking out, like pulling the disciples around, okay guys, we've got to figure out what we're doing here, okay? Peter, I need you to do this. Thomas, I need you to do that. No, he wasn't doing that. He would get away and be alone with the Father. And Jesus was never anxious. He was never worried about anything, even as the world was crumbling in upon him. The Father will direct your soul. He'll direct your soul. He'll direct your paths. He'll direct your way of life. Too many of you are asking everyone else what you should do, but you're not going to the Lord. You're seeking blogs, you're seeking social media. You're seeking news outlets. You're seeking all of those things, which aren't bad, but your, your first plan of action is not going to the Lord in prayer. And it needs to be. It must be. We have to understand the Old Testament saints were longing for the Messiah, they had to endure suffering, persecution, starvation, oppressive governments, cannibalism, slaughterings of their family. You even see that in uh, church history in the last 2,000 years. But even still, the primary action was prayer. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, he didn't know the fullness of time when it would come. He even watched his own brothers and sisters boil their family for food. He watched a city be completely destroyed. He watched people abandon the Lord and he endured so much suffering. He had so much stress, so much sorrow, but even then he would only turn to the Lord. Jeremiah had no way of controlling the outcome of their future, of strategizing a plan to overcome the Babylonians to get their city back. He had zero power. The people of Israel had zero power. And that's the point. They needed to turn back to the Lord instead of relying on their own strengths and their own powers. Their own strategies. So I call us, church, to go to the Lord in prayer. I don't want Christmas this time of the year to be an anxious one. I understand some of you may be wondering where a paycheck may be coming from soon. Or maybe you're you're lacking money or you're lacking resources. But I don't want to call I don't want you to resort to anxiety and fear. I want you to trust in the Lord. And let me just say this: if that's any of you, you need to tell the body. The Lord has equipped the church family to help provide needs for you. So don't succumb to fear. Come to the Lord. We must be a people who live who live by and model hope. So what sort of definition did you have for hope when you came in this morning? What sort of hope have you been modeling in your life? Has it been a shaky expectation with no certainty? I hope things change in our country, but I'm not sure. I hope my kids grow up knowing Jesus. I hope I don't mess up as a parent. I hope I don't mess up my marriage Those things are not bad, but there's no certainty in any of them. The most certainty you will get with them is that you will mess them all up. It's a guarantee. Because you and I are not God. But thank God our hope does not reside in our behaviors. The behaviors of this country, the behaviors of our children, the behaviors of our spouses. But in the confident expectation of God to fulfill his word. So allow me to just finish this message by reading to you the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement that was written to counter the heresy of the Greco-Roman world, potentially the heresy that the church of Galatia was facing, which among many things, they were denying the incarnation, that is, the Christmas story, that is, Jesus coming down, God coming and becoming flesh. So let these words you hear be a reason for hope and really what fashions the way you live. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead.